Often in life, we are the most vulnerable, ruthless, and self-destructive when we find ourselves in a situation that leaves us feeling trapped. Entrapment, whether a physical or psychological state, is often one of our greatest fears. It involves the loss of control, something which we humans do not like in the least. It elicits a deep, almost primal fear, a fear which can result in us lashing out in a frantic state, driving us to find whatever means necessary to escape. When escape doesn't come quickly enough, when our efforts have been exhausted, that fear can eventually lead to hopelessness. A hopelessness whose weight and agony can leave us in a state of physical and mental collapse. A tear-stained, hair-pulling, teeth-gnashing, writhing wreck. If you pay close attention to many of the frightening tales of the supernatural that permeate the folklore of every area, you may discover that the most unnerving and truly terrifying tales all center in some way or another around the idea of entrapment. Samuel Jocelyn, though loved by friends and family, was a man of profound stubbornness. When Samuel Jocelyn set his mind to something, there would be little anyone could do to sway him. It was a trait that was, in a sense, a double-edged sword. While that stubbornness also carried into self-confidence which had afforded him many an opportunity in life. It was also something which could get him into trouble, especially with those close to him. You see, Samuel always believed that he was right and didn't take kindly to being contradicted, especially by his wife. While most women of the time would have thought it better to give in and pretend to agree with their husband's outlandish perceptions of reality, Mrs. Joslyn was not that type. In fact, she was quite a lot like Samuel in the sense that she too was quite stubborn and was also willing to take a firm stand in defense of her side of the argument. Now, it wasn't that the couple had an unhappy marriage. In fact, it was those very traits that drew them together. It could be said that part of the fun was the thrill of the fight, 
a battle of wits, or stubbornness, as it was. And the spoils of the battle would be the bragging rights for that who won the final say in the matter. Such was the foundation of their marriage. In winter of 1810, Samuel and his wife took a trip out to a hunting lodge to spend some time with close friends. The lodge was located on the Honey Island Swamp, just outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. While it may sound like a dreary place to spend winter festivities, the Honey Island Swamp can be a rather enchanting place. Filled with large, partially submerged cypress trees, draped with curtains of Spanish moss, when the sun shines through it, it can be quite beautiful. On sunny days, the waters will reflect a perfect mirror image of the trees. And the browns and greens the light brings out almost gives it a whimsical quality. The swamp is also home to a wide array of wildlife, making it a fantastic place, not only for hunting, but for bird watching as well. As the couples had settled in and spent the night in good spirits, warming their bellies with good food and drink, Samuel soon turned to giving his ideas of how the next few days should play out. Quite sure of himself that his plans would be far better than what any of the others could come up with. While the others in the room just smiled and politely nodded as Samuel clamored on. His wife wasn't so forgiving. She countered his ideas with ideas of her own. And soon, what was first a pleasant chat, fell into a heated battle between the two Jocelyns. So heated was the argument that Samuel, stubborn to the core, decided to leave rather than submit to the idea that his plans may not be the best. Furious by the insult of his wife's contradictions, Samuel stomped out of the lodge and belligerently made his way to the stables. The others soon followed, desperate to try to de-escalate the situation and perhaps talk some sense into him. But Samuel wasn't having any of it, and he angrily saddled and mounted a horse, riding it out into the night. Now, had they been back home in Wilmington, this perhaps would not have been such a big deal. And the others probably would have been more than happy to have allowed him to ride off and cool down. But here, at the Honey Island Swamp, this act worried his friends and wife. You see, the swamp can be quite a treacherous place at night. 
The pitch black nights make it almost impossible to see where you are going. And those half-submerged cypress trees have a way of tricking you during the nights, making you think that the path before you is solid ground. As Samuel rode on into the night, he fell victim to the tree's trickery. Before he knew it, both he and the horse had plunged into the cold, slimy waters of the swamp. Disoriented and surging with adrenaline, Samuel desperately sloshed about, feeling around for the bank. After a few minutes of cursing and slipping over some fallen tree branches, he finally managed to make his way out of the water. However, unfortunately for Samuel, it was an act that his horse had already beaten him to, leaving poor Samuel wet, lost, and completely alone. To make matters worse, as the night egged on, the temperatures dropped, and Samuel, soaked to the bone, soon found himself freezing. It was soon more than his body could bear, and eventually, Samuel lost consciousness. The next day, when Samuel didn't return, a search party was called. After hours of combing the area of the swamp, Samuel was finally located by one of his friends. He was cold, stiff, and laying in four inches of water. Samuel Jocelyn had finally let his stubbornness get the best of him and was laid to rest in the St. James Episcopal Church Cemetery. Now this should have been the end of Samuel Jocelyn's story, but unfortunately for Samuel, it was not. It was dark, black, as if all light had disappeared. He felt heavy, disoriented, and his head was pounding. Samuel laid there for a moment, eyes squeezed shut, recounting the events from earlier. He pieced together that he must have fallen unconscious and that he must still be at the swamp. The air smelled musty and earthy, which went along with that theory. But instead of feeling cold, as he had before, now Samuel felt quite warm, almost hot. Samuel began to wonder if, perhaps, he was feverish, which would account for that pounding headache and why he felt so out of sorts. He opened his eyes and strained to see, in hopes of surveying his surroundings. But nothing. A cold panic shot through him as he began to realize that 
The stresses put on his body must have blinded him. The panic turned into fear, and a surge of adrenaline rushed through his body, which gave Samuel the strength to bolt upright. Except he couldn't. Something seemed to be on top of him. He lifted his arms the best he could and ran his hands over what was on top of him. It was smooth and appeared to be made of wood. As his senses sharpened, he suddenly became aware of what was underneath him. It wasn't leaves or mud. It was some sort of smooth fabric. His fear intensified and his breathing became sharp and rapid as Samuel slowly began to piece together the seriousness of his situation. He ran his hands over his body, feeling his clothes. He was not dressed in the same casual attire he had retreated out into the night in. He felt the stiff wool and cold buttons of his best jacket and the rough fabric of fine new trousers. His heart began to pound and his body began to shake as he came to the realization that he had been buried alive, trapped underground in a sealed coffin. He began to scream for help, but he knew the odds of anyone actually hearing his pleas were slim to none. Desperate for a way out, he began to push and kick at the lid of the coffin. But it was impossible. The dirt above added too much extra weight. As panic turned to pure terror, Samuel began clawing at the lid above him. He clawed so frantically with such force that his fingernails began to tear off until he was left with useless, raw, bleeding fingers. As his desperation began to give away to hopelessness, Samuel began to crumble. He coiled his worn fingers in his dark matted hair and let out a long, sobbing scream into the darkness. The day after Samuel's burial, one of his close friends woke up with a start. He had the most unsettling dream. Yet, it felt so different than any other dream he had previously had. It felt so real, and even hours after waking, it stuck with him, the details just as vivid. The dream was of Samuel. He had been in the bedroom with him, but he wasn't at all like the man he had known. This Samuel wasn't the strong, unshakably confident man that he had known in real life. This Samuel was disheveled, shaky, and seemed almost mad. 
In the dream, Samuel had grabbed him by the shoulders and shaken him violently. He had screamed in the most unnerving tone of voice the man had ever heard. It sounded almost like a wild animal. Then, with eyes wide with fear or madness, or perhaps both, Samuel half sobbed and half screamed out the words, I'm not dead! I'm not dead! Dig me up! Dig me up! Please, God, dig me up! The next evening, the friend joined a few others for drinks. The three men were all close, had been so for years, and they were all in their own ways heavily mourning the loss of the fourth member, Samuel. Naturally, as the evening wore on, the conversation soon turned to that of their departed friend. After a few more rounds, the one friend told the others about the strange dream he had the previous night. Now he expected to be met with scoffing, or gentle taunts. But the reaction he got was far from that. The other men stared at him, pale-faced. Then, each one recounted having had a similar dream. Living during an era where seances and contact with the dead were an accepted occurrence in society, the men were convinced that they had been contacted by Samuel. And not only that, but he had possibly been buried alive and was seeking their help. The men immediately made their way to the cemetery and pleaded for the grave to be exhumed. However, those on shift refused. It wasn't until the next morning that they were finally able to get the cemetery's permission. And it took until that afternoon before the gravediggers began digging their shovels into the soft earth. After several hours of work, the shovels hit the coffin and the workers scrambled to lift it up and pry open the lid. When the lid finally came off, everyone gasped in horror at what they saw. There, turned on its side, was the body of Samuel Jocelyn. The eyes were wide, the mouth contorted into a scream, and the hands were by the head, the bloodied fingers still grasping, fistfuls of hair. If you visit Wilmington, North Carolina, and happen to venture to the St. James Episcopal Church Cemetery, you may catch a glimpse of Samuel Jocelyn. It's sad that ever since his coffin was unearthed, and that grisly discovery was made. His spirit has been spotted in the cemetery, 
most often walking near his grave. Those who take part in the Wilmington Ghost Walk claim to encounter a shadow-like figure leaning nonchalantly on a tombstone by Samuel Jocelyn's grave. It appears that poor Samuel will always be trapped in the grave that never should have been. Samuel's story is not that unique. Throughout history, there have been an overwhelming number of people who have met that same agonizing fate. Our first known written account of a premature burial happened in the 14th century, when the tomb of renowned medieval philosopher John Dunn Scotus was opened some weeks after his burial. The men in attendance were frightened by what they saw. There, on the ground before them, a few feet away from his coffin, was the philosopher's body. It was obvious that he'd been trying to free himself. In the 17th century, an English woman named Alice Blunden was not only buried alive, she was buried alive twice. Alice Blunden, having married well, was on the upper crust of the 1600s London middle-class society. Her house was furnished with fine wares, her clothing fashionable, and her pantries filled to the brim with rich foods and fine teas. Alice was known best for her love of entertaining and was known in the London circle for her boisterous behavior, which was often encouraged by her love of the drink that her husband's line of work helped to produce, brandy. Now, Alice was also quite fond of food and spent much of her days entertaining others over trays of rich cheeses, meats, and sweets. While her personality may have made her quite fun to be around, there was an issue with Alice that many had trouble getting past. Since Alice spent hours upon hours of her days eating, she had become quite large. In fact, whenever Alice was brought up in conversation among the other women, she was always referred to as being the fat, gross woman. Now, it also probably didn't help that even though Alice and her husband were considered relatively well-to-do, they still were not wealthy enough to afford the luxury of frequent bathing. That was an act which was reserved for the wealthiest members of society. So, you can probably imagine that 
Alice. With that fatty diet combined with her love of brandy and her lack of bathing, more than likely would have also have had a stronger odor than most. As the years passed, Alice's already large frame doubled in size, and friends and family began to worry. Alice soon began having difficulty with mobility and seemed to be in constant pain. Desperate to ease her suffering, Alice visited an apothecary. There she was prescribed poppy water, or poppy tea, an opiate which, when consumed in small doses, would have allowed her relief from her pain. However, as you can probably guess, consuming in small amounts was not in Alice's nature. That evening, weary with the aches of her swollen joints, Alice prepared herself a cup of poppy water, and then another, and another. Soon afterwards, Alice began feeling drowsy, and she made her way into the bed. She then fell into a deep, deep slumber. The next morning, her husband tried to awaken her, but Alice was unresponsive. Fearing the worst, the husband sent the servant out to find an apothecary. Upon arrival, the doctor attempted to shake the large woman awake, but there was no response. He then produced a small mirror and held it under her nose for a few seconds, and then shook his head. The mirror failed to fog, meaning that Alice was no longer amongst the living. Or so they thought. Alice's husband was highly distraught over his wife's departure, but was unable to properly grieve as he had urgent business on the other side of London. Missing this appointment would mean the termination of his employment, something the now widowed father of two could not afford. So William Blunden sent the servant out to fetch Alice's parents who lived close by, and left strict instructions for them to postpone the funeral until he returned. However, when the family arrived, they went against William's wishes and decided to have an immediate burial. While that may seem extremely callous. There was a very good reason for them doing so. Back then, there were no mortuary freezers to hold bodies in, and since it was the middle of summer, and Alice was so obese, 
It would have been unwise to let the body sit that long. You see, the fatter the corpse, the quicker the decomposition process takes place. Due to the sudden nature of her death, there was no time to commission a custom coffin. So the family had to settle for what was already available. Unfortunately, since Alice was such an unusually large-sized woman, fitting her into a standard-sized coffin was no easy task. The workers had to unceremoniously stuff her into the coffin. Even then, Alice was still spilling out of it, so to speak. The only way they were able to fit all of her in there was by using poles to help beat down and wedge her arms and other bits into the casket. After the whole ordeal was finished, the lid was nailed on, a group of strong men carried Alice out to the cemetery where her burial rites were conducted. Alice was laid to rest in a lovely park-like cemetery, which happened to be located close to a boarding school. The day after her burial, some schoolboys were out playing in the cemetery during their break and were frightened when they heard a moan coming from one of the graves. The boys quickly ran back and told the headmaster what they had heard. But instead of receiving his help, they instead were whipped, a punishment for making up stories. However, later, more children reported hearing the frightening sound, and the headmaster decided to investigate for himself. Sure enough, as he approached the area, he too heard the muffled cries for help. <laughs> Horrified, the headmaster ran to fetch help, but it would still be yet another day until any efforts took place to unearth Alice's coffin. Twenty-four hours after first hearing the muffled cries, shovels began making their way through the muddied earth of Alice's grave. When the shovels clinked against the coffin, the workers scrambled to dig it out enough to be able to begin prying it open. As soon as the lid came off, those in attendance were met with a horrible sight. There laid Alice, bruised, bloodied, and barely clinging to life. It appeared they had reached her just in time, as her air supply must have been close to running out, and she was barely clinging to consciousness. When poor Alice felt the fresh air rush over her face, 
She was overwhelmed with emotion. The horrifying ordeal had finally come to pass, and she was saved. Alice, though, was still so overwhelmed by the hell that she had endured that the intense emotion mixed with the exhaustion caused her to faint. An expected reaction, to be sure. However, sadly for Alice, the grave workers didn't view it this way. They took her sudden loss of consciousness as a sign of death, or at least a sign that death was close enough. And they immediately nailed the lid of the coffin back on and quickly set about to filling back in the grave. Hours later, Alice Blunden awoke, and to her utter horror, found that she was once again blanketed in darkness, surrounded by the familiar smell of damp earth. She screamed out, sobbing. <laughs> but this time, she knew her screams would do her no good. Hopelessness consumed her, and she lashed out, dragging her nails over her face, creating deep gashes as she did so. She clawed at the top of the lid, either in desperation or anger, clawing so hard that her nails became embedded in the wood. Even then, Alice continued to dig at the lid, wearing down the skin on her fingertips until the bone was exposed. The day after her second premature burial, her husband, William Blunden, returned home. He was enraged to discover that his beloved wife had been buried while he was gone, denying him the opportunity for that final farewell. Distraught, he made his way to the cemetery to mourn by her graveside. When he approached her grave, he was shocked to see others standing around it and talking in conspiratorial whispers. As he didn't recognize any of those in attendance, William's anger only intensified, and he snapped at the onlookers. What's the meaning of this? It's there that poor William learned the horrifying details of his wife's ordeal. How her family had not only denied his wishes, but had, also in the process, brought about an unimaginable suffering upon his wife. Well, fearing that she may still be alive, William had the grave once again exhumed. But this time, Alice would not feel relief as the air rushed over her body. In fact, Alice 
would never feel anything again. This time, Alice was very much indeed dead. William Blunden pressed charges against his wife's family and all those who buried her. Twice. Those involved with Alice's death were taken into custody and awaited trial. It wasn't until a full year later that the case was heard and a judgment was made. While the court ruled that Alice's death was brought on by gross negligence, none of the individuals involved were convicted. Instead, they were all ordered to pay a considerable fine in restitution for their actions. The sole purpose of this judgment being that this was the first time in known history that the mirror test had failed. Well, Alice's story seems to end there, as there are no accounts of any ghostly appearances by her at that cemetery. Alice does have a connection to another haunting story. Legend has it that the case of Alice Blunden served as inspiration for the chilling tale, Edgar Allan Poe's Premature Burial. It's no surprise that taphophobia, the fear of being buried alive, is still something that creeps into our collective consciousness. It stalks about in the shadows, a nightmare scenario that still, even to this day, has some merit. An entrapment that there is often no escape from. In the mid-1800s, as the flux swept across England and a war began to rage on in the United States, the fear of being buried alive was very much front and center in society's collective consciousness. The fear was so great that safety coffins began being developed in mass. The standard safety coffin was equipped with a device that would allow the coffin's unfortunate occupant the ability to signal that they were still alive. The device was simple in nature, often being a long cord that snaked up through the ground that would be attached to a bell. Not only would the device allow the coffin's unlucky occupant an effective way to get help, but it would also spare them from the immediate despair of hopelessness and the self-harm it could create. Keeping the occupant in a slightly calmer state 
would also help them to conserve air, as the rapid thrashing about would lead to heavier breathing, which depletes the oxygen supply that much faster. Of course, they didn't know that little tidbit at the time. It was just an extra little bonus. It's not clear exactly how many lives were spared from such a cruel fate, thanks to the safety coffin. But we do know that there were instances where it did indeed prevent an untimely death by premature burial. There are written accounts of graveyard workers while making their rounds startled by the frantic tinklings of a graveside bell. A little sound that was a dead ringer for somebody having been buried alive. And yes, that is where the term dead ringer came from. Well, tapophobia, that fear of being buried alive, really began to take hold in the late 1700s. That fear has in one way, shape, or form been lurking about in the shadows of our subconscious for much longer. It has taken various forms throughout history, but they all have their roots in a premature burial. Many of those supernatural creatures of the undead variety got their start as an explanation for the strange things that people discovered when exhuming a grave. There were all sorts of different reasons throughout history why these graves were unearthed in the first place. Some were unearthed for the simple means of reusing a coffin, while others were unearthed due to paranoia. Think the witch hunt era. Sometimes when the grave was uncovered and the body was exposed, onlookers would be shocked to see that the body had appeared to move from its original position. Sometimes the hands would be raised up. Scratches would be found on the inside of the coffin. Or the body would be found laying on its side rather than flat on its back. People then didn't seem to even consider the fact that they may have accidentally buried someone alive. Instead, they believed that some sort of nefarious supernatural force was at play. They envisioned cloaked necromancers raising corpses in the dead of night to do their bidding. Vampires raising from the grave to feast upon the blood of the living, and of demons 
possessing fresh corpses as an extra fun way to torment the living. It's a natural human response to fear death and anything we associate with it. However, being written off as dead before death has managed to take us is perhaps the most frightening aspect of it all. A dark, lonely entrapment from which there is no escape, or the only ascent is that into madness. I want to thank you for listening to this episode and hoped you enjoyed listening to some eerie tales of entrapment. Entrapment.